Assalamualaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest, people, is no stranger uh, to me. Uh, we were, in fact, in the same uh, doctoral cohort in the new program at the time, Educational Leadership and Management at Capella University, and she came up in my feed via Dr. Dina, who was on the podcast, if you have been listening to the, to the show, and I was like, hey, I know her, and I saw the logo, I went to the website, and I reached out uh, to Dr. Turney for coming on and sharing her gems because she's doing some amazing things. And I love the graphics and the pictures and how she's actually documenting what she's doing uh, as well. So that is very awesome to see. So for those who'll be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, and now Audible, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Kristen Lynn Turney? Well, thank you, Dr. Will, for having me on. I'm Dr. Crystal Turney, and I am excited to speak with you all today. I started my career as an English theater and public speaking teacher in the greater Cincinnati area, moved to Dayton, moved back to Cincinnati, and I continued my career as a school improvement and literacy coach. From there, I went on to become an assistant principal at a suburban urban. And I share that suburban urban piece because it was situated in a suburban area, but we had urban demographics. So high English language learners, high students with disabilities, high uh, economically disadvantaged and a large number of students of color as well. After I left that experience, I went on to Fairfield Middle School where I became the first African-American principal there actually the first African-American of any school in that district. Uh, at the time, it was the largest middle school in the state of Ohio with 1,700 seventh and eighth graders. And every single time I say that, I giggle um, because yes, 1,700 seventh and eighth graders, um, but it was a wonderful experience. From there, I went on to Coleraine High School where I became the first African-American principal there as well. And I share those two experiences of being the first African-American principal at those two buildings because not only was I the first African-American principal, but I was also one of the few staff members of color. And our demographics were changing. We were getting in more students of color, more English language learners, students in poverty, et cetera. So it was a journey for me as well as my staff in the sense that I was coaching them through this process. It was almost like I was conducting an equity audit as well as developing a diversity plan as we went along. After I left Coleraine High School, I went into district office in which I served in curriculum and human resources with focus areas around diversity. And it was during that time that I said, you know what, there's a greater calling for me and on my life. And I was already working with districts on the side, sharing my thoughts and expertise around diversity, diversity professional development, equity audits, equality. I was also a professor at the time in which I taught a community of learners 
focused on equity versus equality. And so in 2019, I decided to do my own thing and this is my own thing. And I have been very fortunate uh, to continue to do that. And uh, I'm also an author of a book and several articles, which I'm sure we will get to throughout this uh, conversation. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio with my husband, as well as four children, Camille, Carson, Layla, and Lennox. And we have uh, a Pomeranian named Quincy as well. So just a little bit of background information. I want still too much thunder from the questions, but I, again, I'm excited to be here and I look forward to our conversation today. Awesome, awesome. So you've mentioned how you have led schools and have held a leadership position at the district level, what were you seeing throughout the years or even recent before you took that leap that motivated you to actually become an educa educational consultant? You know, I was seeing disproportionality. I was seeing it in academics as well as discipline. And so that led the charge to say, wait a minute, in both of the districts and the buildings that I was the first African-American principal in, it was almost like these things were happening. And I don't want to say no one cared because I do believe they cared. They just didn't have the solutions to tackle them. And so again, that gave me energy and fuel and, uh, opportunities and research just to be able to build and address those. And so during those times um, in which I served as building principal, I started to develop various programs that address the academic needs and the disproportionality there, as well as the discipline and behavior needs, as well as helping my staff members to be more culturally competent because we were seeing that disconnect. And that's why a lot of the students' behaviors were escalating, especially our students of color, because they were unfortunately being fueled by some staff members who were not as culturally competent as they could have been. Mm. So I know that you're in this game. And what's interesting for me is I just, when I got on Instagram really to sort of like, let me give this thing another chance. And I just saw so many educators who have created a side hustle or they're doing this thing full time. So I was very happy to see that. Uh, I was also happy to see just so many black folk out there really getting out there and, and, and sharing their knowledge to create that impact and the income. But still we live in a time where so many of our colleagues really don't see or make the connection between what they're doing in the classroom and how they can make inroads outside of the classroom in sharing that knowledge, whether it be lesson planning, uh, teaching in small groups, teaching with technology, you know, just using those skills that they've learned to create a business. Uh, how has your experiences in K through 12 actually prepared you to launch your business? Well, I can honestly say that, you know, in my mind, as we think about being prepared for something, sometimes we don't know what God is preparing us for. 
And so when I started my career as an English theater, public speaking teacher, I was just kind of going about, but then I noticed myself growing and learning and having that thirst and passion for being a lifelong learner, delving into this research, asking myself the questions. I wonder if I implement this program, what would happen? Or can I modify this data by implementing this program? And it just continued to build. And so throughout this, I have just really trusted that I will always be where God wants and needs me to be. And that actually brings me to um, the topic of my, my first book, my first of hopefully many books. And the title is Inspiration and Reflections for the School Leader. And in there, I talk about my relationship and my connection with God and being inspired throughout this journey. And so I think it just, while I want to say that I was preparing myself for this role. I really wasn't. It just developed and happened upon. Um, and thank you for speaking about Instagram and the world out there. It's so interesting because, yes, you did reach out to me via Instagram. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my least favorite platform um, because I am not good on Instagram. So anybody out there who wants to follow me, yes, you can follow me on Instagram. But I am a lot better on Facebook, Twitter, and even LinkedIn. Um, when you also talk about that side hustle, I was, in fact, consulting on the side, but again, it was opportunities that just came about. People saw what I was doing and they asked questions and said, hey, do you want to come over here and help me on the side? Absolutely. And it just developed and built from there. Mm. So were you were first starting out, particularly when you were intentional, right? Because what happens with a lot of us that I have spoken to, and you just mentioned where you can be presenting at a conference or you can be speaking to someone somewhere and they hear what you're doing. They see what you're doing and they're like, wow, can you come over? And you start to pick up a couple of jobs and, you know, you're like, hey, this is awesome. You know, especially, you know, I'm enjoying this. And then a check come in. You're like, oh, well, yes. all right. All right. But to be intentional with I'm going to create a business and I'm going to move forward with this. And, and you know, that takes another mindset and skill set. Yeah. And so when you were first starting out, how did you get over the, the hurdles of making sure that everything was done in the proper way? What were some of the moves that you had to make? So that's a great question. And I could say that when I first started out, in the back of my mind, I said, if this doesn't work out by April, then I'm just going to go find a job and I'm going to move on with my life, go back to a school district, and that'll be the end of that. But as I was learning about business and consulting and strategies for branding and marketing, I met some fabulous people along the way. And one of the individuals I met along the way shared with me that I should not have a backup plan. This mm -hmm. is the plan and to stick with it. it. It has to work or else. And so that was early on 
when I started. So I started my business in August, 2019. This conversation probably happened in September, 2019. And so I'm like, ah, girl, whatever. I'm still gonna go back if I feel like it, whatever. And I would say by November, when I had gotten a couple of substantial contracts, I said, you know what? I, I have to keep going. This is what I'm going to do. So when you talk about the hurdles, so that was August 2019 when I started. We all know what happened March 2020, COVID hit. And yes, that did take a lot of wind out of me. I did not know where I was going to go, what I was going to do, because so many districts who I've been working with were really focused on how are we going to educate the students for the rest of the 2019-2020 school year, and then how are we going to start the 2020-2021 school year? And so, of course, I'm the last person they wanted to speak with. But you know, in May 2020, an unfortunate incident happened, but it became an eye-opener for districts and really the world. And that was the killing of George Floyd. And that actually boosted my business because more and more school districts saw the need for a plan. They didn't even have a plan for addressing it. And what also fueled this situation was that students and parents and graduates took to social media and they started really blasting these school districts saying, I did not receive a quality education because I'm black. I didn't receive quality education because I spoke another native language, whatever the case may have been. And so more districts started to say, okay, even though we're trying to plan for return back to school in a pandemic, We're also trying to address these concerns. And so while COVID was that hurdle, George Floyd was that opening for me to continue to go, to keep going. And that has been really um, a, a good opportunity to address some of these inequities and disproportionalities as it relates to academics, discipline. I'm even seeing it in athletics. It's all, it's everywhere in our schools. And it makes my role that much more valuable. And it keeps me going because I am doing exactly what I wanted to do, which was have an impact on as many districts as I possibly can have. So you are the founder, operator, CEO, boss, all of those things of Dr. Kristen Lynn LLC. You just mentioned the work that you're doing. So I'm, I'm going to bring in something that Dr. Adina talked about when she was on my show. And she talked about the receipts uh, and, and what you are actually doing uh, at your school, work that you've done that you can show, demonstrate that you have this expertise. How did you go about when you decided that this diversity and equity would be the center of the work that you're doing that you, in looking back on what you were doing, how did you figure out that this was going to be the foundation of your business? 
Well, it's almost like I didn't choose it. They chose me. The work chose me. Uh, while this was definitely one of my areas of research and expertise, my business is actually, um, I specialize in three areas, and that is school improvement, leadership coaching, and mentoring, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, again, when the incident happened with George Floyd, I think that that opened uh, so many school districts' eyes that they started to seek out that guidance and support. And so that has uh, been my bestseller um, prior to the George Floyd incident, really, and, and when, again, students and graduates and parents started calling out districts, prior to that, my bestseller was actually in school improvement. Um, and so it shifted. And I think that, um, again, the work chose me in that respect. And I'm very fortunate to have worked with a number of districts on diversity plans, as well as equity audits. I've also performed um, uh, professional development workshops um, on bias training, cultural competence, et cetera. And so those areas have continued to build. So when we talk about receipts and uh, reviews and recommendations, many of the districts and organizations that I've worked with, they've experienced that success and that shift from me doing that. And that has really led to the opportunities in other districts and agencies as well. Well, you know, you, you get on, especially I, IG is notorious uh, for this, uh, and you can find some of this on LinkedIn as well, but you will see so many people who will say, I help people become six and seven figure entrepreneurs, and I can get you, and I can get you there, <clears throat> and I'm not saying that they can't, but it just seems like they're selling this stuff like overnight. I can take you from here to there overnight or very quickly. And to me, I'm like, okay, I don't trust that type of process. But as someone who, you know, started out in as an educator and you are moving into this entrepreneurial space, uh, who did you turn to, to actually go from skill set to paychecks? I don't know if I can answer that question. I want to say God, <laughs> just, just saying, you know, God lead me and guide me through this process. And as I started my initial research, I came across those people that said, Hey, I'm going to teach you how to be a coach. I'm going to teach you how to be a consultant. You could be six figures. You could lay in 20 contracts in a month, things like that. And I took all the free advice I could possibly get and I listened well and, and got that guidance and support, but many of those individuals didn't focus in education. And while education is definitely a business, it's a very different type of business than what they were marketing and selling. But I can almost say, or I can honestly say that a great shift came when I met Dr. Stevenson on Facebook she saw what I was posting, saw what I was doing and said, hey, you want to be on my show? I said, yes, just like how you reached out to me. Hey, you want to be on my show? Yes, I want to get my name out. I want to get my services out. And I think that helped create that shift. And then I uh, did take uh, up advantage of some of her services that she offered and did some research, took her advice 
and started to build and grow from there. And you know, one thing always leads to another. So I've had other individuals reach out to me and say, well, hey, what did you do? And so then I not only share what Dr. Stevenson shared with me, but I also have my additional piece and my experiences to build on. And I would hope that that continues to grow with others as well. So right, so right, so right. Uh, This is a different game we're playing than other people. Yes. Because... Not only are you dealing with sort of the funding issues that school have to deal with. Is this going to be coming out of Title II money? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this coming from district funds and you're trying to, to negotiate with rates because, you, you know, you can have your rate and you can say my rate is my rate. But it also, if a school district says, look, I got this much left in Title II, I want to have you in then you you may have to negotiate and maybe come down if if you're saying hey I really want to work with you uh or you you know like hey you know, I want to go ahead and clear this five thousand dollars you know this month uh so you may want to do that but and then there's also uh ebbs and flows of the school year because around this time frame a lot of us just ain't working on a consistent basis because testing is going on right now so yeah. schools are shutting down so, mm-hmm. you know, once uh, June, July come, the getting, the getting is going to start getting real good. Yes. And that's when things Can't are going to Yes, man. I'm going to be opening <laughs> it up. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, hey, in June, that's when, you know, it's when my first contract starts. So um, people just in, understand, like, how this thing works, not only in cycles, but understanding that you're going to have to turn in uh you're going to have to do that 10 to 9, 10 9, that uh, W-2 form for the school districts. You're going to have to uh, do that other paperwork uh, for them to become a vendor for them. So that when the first, the, that would gets me like the first time a school, you know, an organization reached out to me and they said, okay, we're going to, I need you to do this. Here's some other additional forms and all. I was like, well, what is this? <laughs> right. And, and, and we need you to be an approved vendor so that, you know, if you come back next time, there's no issue. We don't have to do this paperwork because you're already in the system. We can just cut the check. I was like, all right, all right, cool, cool. But there are things that you have to learn to do this because you're not selling socks, right? So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a different game in learning this. So I'm glad uh, that you brought that up. So I want to get a little deeper into what you're doing. So walk us through a workshop that you do or, or a coaching that you do. When people attend, what will they experience? What will they learn? What will they be able to walk away with? Okay, so walking you through a workshop, for example, let's take implicit bias. Mm-hmm. That's going to include what it is. Um, it's going to include a reflection of self to see if you are in fact biased as it relates to students of color, students in poverty, English language learners, students with disabilities, et cetera. Then we will explore um, some samples, examples that could be videos. And again, that could be articles and reflection pieces that you are 
really internalizing and reflecting on your own practices and what you say or do. Then that's also going to include a walkthrough of your classroom materials, your expectations, your rules, the climate of culture in your classroom, as well as the climate and culture in the school building, and identifying any policies and practices in particular uh, that are antiquated and that are targeted, and then developing some programs that can really address some of the many wrongs in education that we've had, especially against students of color. So that could include developing academic-based programs so that you are boosting the number of color, uh, students of color in your advanced placement courses, your gifted courses, your CCP courses. You know, as I reflect on the data and the numbers that are required to enter into those courses, very little takes into account those kids who are right there on the bubble. And even looking at the students of color who were on the bubble. So oftentimes you get the number and you say, okay, they had a, a 121. They got what they needed, bam, they're in the program. But what about that kid who got a 119? Why aren't we taking a closer look at them, for example, to say, what can we do to boost this kid and to give them the opportunity to be in our advanced placement in our CCP courses so that we are not really um, being disproportionate in the academic opportunities that we provide for our students. So thinking about that in the sense of can we create strategies and programs so that we are coaching these bubble kids so that they do get the opportunities? That also looks like reflecting on discipline practices and policies. Let's look at that handbook. Are there things in the handbook that are very highly targeted toward those at risk or those students of color. So for example, when we think about um, dress code policies, especially in uniform school districts and mostly urban settings. Are we targeting these students because they're not in the right type of pants or the right style of shirt, but we're not taking into consideration that maybe this is the best that their parent can do. So then that becomes a discipline issue. Oh, we're disciplining you because you got four buttons instead of three buttons on your collared shirt. Same thing with uh, tardy policies to school, for example. But many of our students have no control as to the time that they get to school. But once they're there, we have a commitment to educate them. So back to your question, and I, I'm sorry, I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent because I get very, very passionate in talking about this, but back to your question and your point of how do those workshops look? Um, it is really delving into uh, what that school district is providing, uh, what those classrooms look like, and how we can make sustainable change, not just change so that Dr. Crystal and Tony leaves, it goes away, change so that no matter who comes, who goes, that is what that district is going to do. That's what that school is going to do. And it is ingrained in the culture forever. Mm. Hey, and, and that's okay. I love what you were talking about uh, as well. But when you get to a school district and you're in a workshop and let's say you, you come across teachers or school leaders who 
in their heart, <laughs> right? They they feel that they're not biased, right? So they, yeah. they say, I don't see this, but their actions reflect something different, right? Because I've seen, a, a, a let's say a white teacher, mm-hmm. black student uh, does something that you could say was disrespectful or it was so small, you could just go like, that's not anything I need to even bother to address. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to, I didn't see that, but you know, but that teacher gets upset. They get in that student face mm-hmm. and, and they're like, don't be doing that no more. Who you think you are? Blah, 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 blah. Right. But they don't see that as something maybe racially motivated but i look at it and for me just looking at it i'm like they don't look right to me right right uh because in my mind i'm thinking you know one you're being disrespectful to that student and you are creating a relationship here that you can create more problems down the road than you're going to fix right now and number two if you run up on the right mama, mm-hmm. <laughs> you may be catching some hands later on. Like you may get that parent coming to that school and create more issues that you don't want to deal with simply because you as an adult refuse to kind of see mm, that's not the best way to handle it. Now that could not be racially motivated or it just could be that teacher just got a short fuse. But for those who don't see those actions as being biased or don't see those mm-hmm. actions as being something that they need to curtail <clears throat> how do you work through that process to get them to understand that how you communicate with students how you deal with students how you see your students all of that affects the outcomes in your classroom absolutely and again that's that cultural competence piece and oftentimes People don't see that and they don't connect to that. But again, if you sit there and reflect and I might ask a question in my session, um, has a student ever gotten into your face or uh, blown up at you? And then the, the teacher kind of reflects on that. And then why did that happen? What happened before that? And that is really peeling back those layers and opening that book to say, Did I do something to trigger this? And is it because I simply wasn't aware of like cultural norms that if I get into this kid's face and he gets into my face, then we're just going to keep going at it because I don't want to calm down as a teacher. And this student sure isn't going to calm down. So one of us, and hopefully the adult in the situation has to de-escalate the, the situation. And I think that that also comes with cultural competence and awareness to say, what are these triggers, especially for Black boys or for Black girls or for students in poverty? What are some of these triggers? And while we can't name everything, we can't run the whole race of it, we can also look at social emotional learning and mental health services to say, you know what? When I got in that kid's face, yep, that triggered it. It started off being just remove your hat, 
when you walked into the classroom. And now it's escalated because this student has called me names. He didn't, you know, put his finger in my face. And now we're on a different level. And thinking about, uh, again, when I was a building principal, these were some of the things that we oftentimes struggled with. So I would get referrals or oversee referrals in which students uh, use profanity against the teacher and, uh, you know, threaten the teacher. And so we kind of peel back that layer. Okay, how did it start? What happened next? What happened next? And then it was almost that self-awareness and reflection from the teacher that says, oh, yeah, it was because I went to close the door because the bell rang and he was on the other side of the door and I slammed the door in his face. And that led him to, or her to, you know, being disrespectful and then threatening me. And so the referral is student threatened teacher and things like that. Well, but you slammed the door in his face to start off because he was late or he had a hat on, whatever the case may be, just reflecting on how we got to that place that that student became um, so angry and frustrated that it led to really a whole different discipline and fraction as opposed to something as simple as you had on a hat, remove it, please, or whatever. Awesome. So before we go, what is your sort of recommendation or how can like educators or why should educators be shameless in pursuing opportunities or options uh, that they may have in education. You know, like when they have that ambition to become a coach or become a consultant or to write a book or to, to, to put out a course uh, or, or sell. I, have, I know people who get upset because teachers sell lesson plans. And I'm like, why not? Right. Uh, why should educators be shameless? in pursuing these opportunities and do so without, quite honestly, caring what other people think? Great question. And first of all, you said, uh, before we go, I'm like, no, I don't want to go yet. <laughs> we could talk all day. And I'm sorry, I could talk all day. But again, I'm very passionate and excited to be here. So, you know, listen, why not? We see so many challenges problems, concerns in our education system. We know that it cannot be fixed overnight, but we know that we all have to take those steps to make that positive change. So if you have a rock star lesson plan or a series of lessons that work and that are successful and engage students, then why not sell them? Because as you are selling that lesson plan, you are selling it to a teacher who's struggling to even come up with something to engage their students. Same thing with services. So as consultants, we have to keep in mind that we are going in as third party. We are outsiders looking in and many districts need that. So you can hire all of the equity uh, supervisors and, and diversity coordinators, they're wonderful, not taking anything away from them, but they are also insiders. So they only see what they see on the inside. When you bring those individuals in from the outside, that's that view that first of all, you need to see 
these disproportionalities and inequities, but also it gives you the opportunity as a school district to explore some changes and things that uh, could really have a positive impact. So as entrepreneurs, get out there and, and work and show organizations, agencies, and school districts uh, that they need you. And why not? And who cares what others say? Because oftentimes you're out there making a huge and positive difference for those school districts and they need you. And that, that's what I can say to that. They need you. Keep going. You are the change that we need in our educational system or a part of the change. That's all right. And thank you, Doc, for coming on the show. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode is going to be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe, leave your comments. And yes, I like the stars, but can I get some reviews? Because not only am I trying to be found, but I'm trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. That's again, right. I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, I like to thank my guest, Dr. Krista Lynn Turner, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I'd like to thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show. As always, people, invest in you. EDU. Peace.